Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SACS's Essay Today podcast. My name is Michelle Botcher, and I'm an associate professor at Clemson University, and I'm also your host for this program. Today, I am very pleased to have Dr. Roshonda Breeden at North Carolina State University as our guest. Roshonda, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. This will be a good one. It's all about you, so... Yes. Hopefully you're an expert on that topic, right? (laughs) (laughs) I hope so. We shall see, right? Exactly. So speaking of all about you, before we get into work and career, um, would you mind telling the listeners a little bit about who you are outside of work? Any hobbies you have, what you're reading, watching, listening to, anything you'd like to share? Sure, Will. So We're going to talk about my doctoral journey a little bit in a second, and I'll be honest to say I'm just now relearning what things excite me, what are my hobbies, what things do I like again, because I've been living in this pandemic and dissertation world for two years now, and so I've been on this journey to really figure that out. And I will say, aside from all my academic work, I love critically acclaimed dramas and docuseries and Netflix, Hulu, um, HBO Max, all of those things are my friends. And I love, love, love to engage in a movie about powerful topics and then have conversations about those. <laughs> Um, I also really love live tweeting major television events. And so being in community with people, even though I'm not in community with them in real life is exciting to me, especially as an introvert. We were talking about that earlier. I like being able to, you know, pretend that I'm with people by live tweeting. So that could be, you know, music award shows or some big announcement has happened. I love engaging with people in that way. I also love singing along to R&B, mostly 90s R&B. I love Southern like trap music (laughs) and singing along in my spare time. If I have to get excited about an interview or excited about anything I'm nervous about, like this podcast, I'll listen to like a, a trap song to get excited. And I also really like musicals. So musicals, Broadway plays, I adore like Color Purple, Lion King. I can't wait for Sister Act 2 to come to theater. Um, If you can't tell from all those things, Whoopi Goldberg is my favorite actress. (laughs) And so I I really enjoy media and all that media uh, brings to us and the way that we can, you know, share emotions and laugh and also decompress. So that's what I'm doing these days. Well, very good. Um, I I can kind of tell when it's been too long since I've spent time with music and it's like, oh, I need to do that. So hopefully that accompanied you on your doctoral journey. Uh, hopefully you didn't have to cut it out. Right. So I had so many playlists, you know, <laughs> days where I was not, I did not want to write at all. I had like get motivated playlists, days when I was a little bit sad. I had some emotional, <laughs> emotional playlists featuring Adele and all those other folks that make you tear up a little bit. Um, and so, yes, music did carry me on, but I'm also just getting back to what I adore. Um, uh, Grey's Anatomy. Mm-hmm. I watch 
all of Grey's Anatomy as I worked on my dissertation, like all 17 seasons. And each night I would just, after I was done writing, I would go in my, in my bed and watch Grey's and cry. (laughs) (laughs) And that is a really good show. So all you listeners out there, if you have not watched Grey's Anatomy, it really does live up to the hype. (laughs) Well, and it's interesting that you say, you know, the emotional part of it, because doing a dissertation, I mean, doing a doctoral program in general, but especially the dissertation, it's very emotional. It's, it's up and down. So Mm -hmm. did you built in a release for that? I had to, you know, sometimes Mm -hmm. I just needed a space to be emotional, be happy, sad, angry, relieved. And Grey's Anatomy set that platform for it to be okay. Like whatever was going on, I could feel emotions really deeply with the characters and I enjoyed that. Awesome. Well, okay. So how about the, the work you, you know, what's your journey been um, into doing the work that you just completed and kind of, how'd you get there? Yeah. Yeah. So first let's, I'm a student affairs person. um, And so I like to talk about how I came to this work, thinking about undergrad first. Mm -hmm. Before that, I was a first gen, low income college student who went to undergrad at North Carolina State University. And I didn't know any of the answers. I needed a lot of help. (laughs) And so I had quite a bit of folks at North Carolina State who looked out for me. Um, I majored in two um, different majors, psychology and African-American studies. I got my master's from the University of Georgia after some mentors, you know, told me about student affairs. And I worked for about 12 years before going back to get my PhD. And in, in between working and going back to school, I like to say I was a higher ed administrator at two HBCUs, so Spelman College in Atlanta and North Carolina Central. Um, And at those HBCUs, I was in residence life. (laughs) So I'm a housing kid for all you housing folks out there. You know, we we make the university work. Right. And so I will always have that background. And if you can do housing, we all know you can do anything. After working at North Carolina Central in housing, I went back to North Carolina State, which was my alma mater, and I worked in the business school doing academic advising and diversity and equity work. Did that for about four, five years, and diversity work can take a lot out of you mentally, physically, emotionally, and so I, I needed to take a break. And I was focused more on systemic issues in our field, like how could we really tackle those issues? And so I went over to the TRIO office at North Carolina State where I started working. And I loved working with TRIO students, first-gen, low-income students in Eastern North Carolina. We had a great time going on college tours and, and me just being able to open their eyes to what college could be like because that was my own experience. And I love that job. But again, I was interested in like systemic change. How could we make broader change in higher ed where we wouldn't even need programs like TRIO anymore because students would be able to be recruited or able to um, 
have an easier access into higher ed than what we make it. And so that's when I started looking into doc programs, trying to figure out my next move. And honestly, I wanted to stay in North Carolina. I tried so hard, but the University of Georgia really recruited me. They loved on me. They made sure I had an assistantship. They made sure I had everything that I needed. It was literally a no brainer. <laughs> and so that's how I got to the University of Georgia. And it was, it's been a incredible journey. You know, people talk about the PhD journey being tough and it is. And I had really good community of faculty members. I had amazing peers who showed me the ropes as a first gen student. And we also had a smaller community of black scholars. Um, the program is called College Student Affairs Administration. And we had a smaller subset called Black CASA. And when I tell you, people gave me their books and their notes. And if it was time for conference season, folks would pay for my registration fees and things like that. And so I really had this village of people looking out for me in the doc program. And that was a game changer. I love that. Yeah, it. Um, so you, when you did your doc program, you were a full time student. I was. I, yeah. I wanted to have time to just think. Yeah. Breathe. And we know sometimes as administrators, we're constantly on the go. You're just mm -hmm. on to the next thing. And I needed a break from the field truly to get perspective on if I wanted to stay or if I wanted to go. Mm -hmm. And even with all that we know about the field, what grad school did, particularly the doc program did, was fortify my thoughts around staying. And I never thought it would, but I'm like, this is why we do this. This is why it makes sense. This is why every person, faculty, staff, administrators, students, everyone matters in this conversation. And so, yeah, that's how that came to be. Well, and that's a perfect lead in to the last question before we start talking a little bit more about your dissertation. Um, so we're always talking about how small the field of student affairs is. And if you don't know somebody, you know somebody who knows somebody. Who have been some of the sort of key players for you as you've navigated your life in higher ed? Oh, there's been so many people. I cannot imagine trying to name everybody. Um, but I will say again, it truly takes a village. It took a village to get me from first gen, low income college student to now a doctor. And even now when I say it, it blows my mind. But I think back to the people in undergrad who poured into me, who said, you know, don't say this, say this, don't wear this, wear that, you know, <laughs> as I think about it, North Carolina State, I think about someone named Felicia Boussard, who was in the Multicultural uh, Student Affairs Office, Dr. Tracy Ray, who was also in that office, um, Candace Moore, Tamika Sloan, um, Dr. Hassel Morrison, Dr. Clyde Wilson, Dr. Coretta Walker, Dr. Bonnie Kendia Bailey, all of these people poured into me. Some of them are grad students, you know, doing the work that I wanted to do. Some of them were directors and VPs. But what was interesting is that they all saw me. 
even though it, sometimes I felt invisible on my campus, there were all of these programs that reminded me that I was not invisible and that people understood my story. And so these were incredible folks. Um, so that's North Carolina State. At Georgia, I had so many people looking out for me as well. My chair, Dr. Darius Means, we call him the illustrious Dr. Darius Means, <laughs> um, looked out for me, asked me great questions, pushed me, but also supported me, made sure I had funding in his um, as his graduate research assistant, and even now checks in on me when he doesn't have to. Um, my faculty, Dr. Diane Cooper, uh, Dr. Um, Laura Dean, Dr. Marilee Dunn, Ooh, so many, so many, um, Dr. Marion Higgins, so many people who just looked out for me and made sure that I had everything that I needed at Georgia. So I like to shout out those people. That's great. Well, okay, so let's let's talk about the experience. And, you know, as you started into the doctoral program, I think some people think you have to walk in the door with your research question. Maybe you're one of those people who was there, but how did how did the research, how did either you find your question or how did your question find you? That is such a great question. And I was not one of those people that walked in with my research question. Mm -hmm. I mentioned that I was I had done diversity, equity, and inclusion work before. And I was still curious about that, but I didn't know how that would take shape in my doc program. So I just started reading all the things and allowing myself to lean into some of these DEI spaces that I had never thought about before. So initially I was doing work around black women in leadership in higher ed and having a great time with that, but also just needing a little bit more. Um, I was also doing work around fat black or fat people in higher ed. Um, and I mentioned fat black because I have a piece on fat black women, not in higher ed, but just in life period. But I was doing work around, um, around that, but it, it still wasn't giving what I needed it to give in terms of my work. And I was sitting with a friend, Dr. TJ Stewart, who's at Iowa State right now. We were sitting in a coffee shop in Panera Bread writing. And he was like, when you think about your work, you know, what is the what is the one question that you want your work to touch on? And then what keeps you up at night? Mm -hmm. And when I started to think about that, I was like, you know what? I really want to care about who is in the margins of the margins in higher ed, who's in the shadows, who aren't we thinking about in higher ed? Um, and it, again, it's connected to my own, you know, own self and feeling invisible as a low income first gen student, mm -hmm. black student, and not really having space that I could really talk about that. And um, when he asked me, you know, what keeps me up at night, I told him, I said, you know, being at the University of Georgia, I love it. And it makes me sad to think that there are some black folks who live right across the street from the school and don't have the same privileges to attend this great university as I do. And 
I, I teared up when I was telling him about it because literally I felt like there was just this great divide between the university I was attending and the black community. Um, I remember parking on a, on a community street and asking someone, a black person, like, what's this building over here? How do I get inside? And the person was just like, lady, I don't know anything about that place. I don't know how, how you get in. I don't know what this building is. And literally it was across the street from where they lived. And so that made me cry. And I wanted to think or look at the relationships between black communities and their local historically white institution. And so I just started to research UGA and then all of this came to be. And I started researching institutions, you know, not just UGA, but historically white institutions like a Clemson, like Brown, like University of Virginia. And I started noticing trends across all of these institutions. All of these institutions had a history of enslavement. All of these institutions had a history of urban renewal or gentrification, particularly in black neighborhoods. All of these institutions had some sort of trauma that had been caused to black communities. Um, some it's like medical abuse of black folk, but there was so much there that I could see, I could easily see this web of mistrust and distrust. And I just wanted to know were community, black community folks, were they talking about this? Um, and how did this color their experience around the historically white institution? Mm -hmm. And so that's how I came to my topic. Do you want to give just sort of like the elevator pitch of what your study was and, and sort of some of the things that you found? Yes, absolutely. Um, and so big picture question is what is the relationship between historically white institutions and black communities. And what we did, and I said we, is what we did is create a participatory action research study mm -hmm. where I recruited two black undergraduate students from Athens, Georgia, and we interviewed black UGA students from Athens. We interviewed black leaders from Athens and Black families from Athens. Mm -hmm. And we asked them questions like, you know, what is the history between the university and the town? How do you make meaning about the university through this history? And the replies that we got were amazing. People had so many connections through the institution that were good bad and ugly. And so we had three central themes that I'll talk about a little bit later. But what we did with that was we wanted the, um, the town to be able to speak back to the community in a, in, a, in a story way. We wanted people to feel and to experience the emotion of what these Black folks were saying to us and what they had been saying for years. So what we did was we put the findings in a theatrical production and a few months ago, or actually just last month, the findings were actually um, placed into a play and community theater put on the play 
and we were able to have a conversation with the community, um, stakeholders at the university, and, you know, other folks, students, faculty, and staff who wanted to join the conversation. And so it it really turned into community-engaged work. Uh, I didn't think it would ever come to all of this. It was just an idea um, a, a year or two ago, but it still continues to move on and grow on. Just this past Friday, we were in a local school and they watched the theatrical production, the three vignettes, and they were able to talk to us about how, how these stories made them feel high school students, you know, and what they planned on doing about it in their own research. And so this project just continues to live on, which is what we wanted. We wanted people to feel compelled to act and they do. So it's been a beautiful time. You know, as much as you talked about the communities that you found and built through your own experience, I love that that thread continues into your work and um, and what a great question that TJ asked you about what keeps you up at night, you know, and um, if, if that's happening, that's the work speaking to you in one way or another. So I love that. Yeah. Um, so how did you choose? So there are so many people that, you know, it's in working with doc students, the dream is always big and it's like, now let's make it manageable. So how did you choose who you were going to invite to be a part of your study? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, as mentioned, I knew that there were some tr trauma pieces here. There was some pain here. And I knew, initially, I thought that I was an outsider. So I, I thought I needed insiders on the research team that could speak to the work. Now I don't view myself as an outsider. I'm a Black person still living in this community, still having the same experiences of my neighbors. Mm -hmm. But back then I thought, okay, I needed people on this team. And so I knew I needed to recruit um, folks from the community. But as a student affairs person, I said, why not undergraduate students, right? Mm -hmm. Why not students who can gain perspective from this um, from this you know, research opportunity, but also it could help them grow mm -hmm. as professionals. And it's funny now because, you know, one of them wants to do a PhD program. And so I think the research bug is, has definitely, you know, caught on to her, but I wanted to recruit them to be a part of that process. Then once they got on board, we had questions about, okay, y'all, what, what, where should we go? And they were the ones to say, oh, well, we're really interested to know, one, are there any other Black students from UGA who are also from Athens? They didn't think a lot existed. And they were right. <laughs> <laughs> and that was telling, right? Mm -hmm. We wanted to talk to those people. Like, what does it mean for you to be the sole person or one of three people in your whole graduating class to attend UGA? what how does that feel for you and then like how are you able to maneuver through these environments you know home and institution what conversations are you having so they wanted to talk to those folks 
They also wanted to talk to Black leaders because, as I mentioned, there have been people in this town having these conversations for hundreds of years. And so we didn't want to just say, okay, this is our topic now. We want to talk about this. We want to be experts. But we wanted to talk to people who have been doing this work, who have been saying the same things for years, who had family that they know were enslaved right here in this town. That's who we, who we all wanted to talk to. And then lastly, the, um, the family focus groups conversation came up in that we wanted to know if the elders were talking to the young people about what they knew, right? Because we started to attend different um, forums and workshops in the community. And we noticed that it was a lot of the elders leading the conversation. But when we talked to the young people, and when I mean young people, I mean K through 12 or college, some of the young people didn't know any of these stories. Mm. We're like, okay, are generations talking to each other? Because that's important here. It's important context to have. And so we set up the family focus groups to have that conversation. And it was amazing because there were families sharing stories with young people that they had never shared before. Literally sitting in the same house, we were all on Zoom. (laughs) But you could see young folks being like, I never knew that. Why didn't you ever say that? But it was kind of like the the elders were like, you know, it was understood that you knew this. And then the young people saying, no, I never knew. And so that is how all of that came to be. And it was a lot to take on initially, but we had students recommending leaders, leaders recommending families, and the people here are truly interconnected. So they just welcomed us into the family and they got us everything that we needed. And I think it's because of the groundwork that we set to be in community, to love on people, to pay them for their time, to do it ethically, not in a way that, you know, was just taking a lot from them, but in a way that was sharing, like, this is who we are and this is what we want to know. And this is why we want to know it. I think that resonated with people and they could they could feel our spirit was good around the topic and that that's how it's we've come to be. So I have a couple of follow-up questions with that. So the family focus groups, it wasn't multiple families, it was multiple people from one family story sharing. Okay. Yes, yes. we had two two family focus groups. Um and one family they had so much to say that we had to meet with them twice. And each time we were like, this is so great. And the ages range, the ages for all the focus groups range from age eight years old to 80 years old. Oh my gosh. Yes. 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 So good question. I love that. And then were your participants, um, were they able to uh, um, attend the performance? And and did you get feedback on that? <laughs> That's a great question, Michelle. So, you know, when the, when the play came to life and it was real, I reached out to all of them to say, hey, 
you have to come and see this. I'll definitely purchase the tickets for you and whoever else you want to come. And folks were so excited. Now it's still doing during COVID. Mm -hmm. So we didn't have everybody take me up on that offer to attend in person. Some people attended virtually, Mm -hmm. but for the people who attended in person, of course, I was the only one to know like who they were, but I watched them. We had six different shows and I went to every show so I could see everybody, but I watched the participants watch themselves. Michelle, when I tell you they laughed, they cried, they were... I think they felt seen in a way they didn't even know they needed to feel seen. And they had they had read it, right? They read that chapter during the um during member checking. <laughs> they knew what the play, you know, what the play was going to say before they came. And and it was 6 months ago, so maybe they had forgotten. But watching them watch themselves, watching them quote themselves, watching them laugh and cry, that will be an experience I will remember for the rest of my life because it was truly embodied at that point. Mm -hmm. And some of them would talk during the talk back and say, I'm a member of this community and watching this just reminded me how important these, these stories are. And they would also say, like, watching this and seeing y'all get moved by these words also reminds me, like, I'm not alone in how I feel. And no, it's not outrageous to tell these stories. What's outrageous is what has happened to folks. And so it was beautiful, Michelle. It, listen, I still cry sometimes, like Grey's Anatomy cry when I think (laughs) about it. <laughs> oh my gosh. So what I have so many questions. And if I ask too many, say, Michelle, go back to the script. No, I love to do that. So so did you write the script for the performance that was part of the dissertative work, or was that in addition to it? Yes, good question. So once we as a research team collected all the data we um, analyzed it all together. So we would review the transcripts together. And I asked um, the participant, or excuse me, I asked the co-researchers to listen to the transcripts and create life notes. So these were letters and um, pictures and songs and anything that came up in their spirit around the transcripts. I asked them to create that. And that also included quotes. I wanted to know, based on our theoretical and um, paradigmatic, uh, paradigmatic frames, I wanted to know what came up in their spirit because we were using Endarkin Feminist Epistemology by uh, Dr. Cynthia Dillard. So I was like, what's coming up in your spirit as you look through these transcripts? And so they were giving me tons of quotes, tons of quotes. There was so much data, Michelle. And so in December 2020, as I sat down and had all of this data, I just sat still for the whole month of December. 
And I just tried to listen to what these participants were telling us. And um, August Wilson, a black playwright from back in the day, talks about, you know, once you truly start to respect the characters in your piece, August Wilson says, you'll start to hear them talking. And it's, it sounds really out here for me to say that, but when I say I truly started to hear them, I was then able to sit right here in this office and take blocks of quotes from participants, put, put them together in a, um, in a pretend space where they were able to talk to each other, talk across each other. And that is how the script came to be. And of course, in the dissertation, I had to pull out, you know, how this aligns to theoretical framework, yada, 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 to make a whole chapter, right? Once I gave that script to participants and to my committee and everybody said it was good to go, I had a participant to say, I love that you've done this as a theoretical uh, production, but what if we did this for real? And I was like, I remember the text like it was yesterday. I was like, girl, you lying. Like, we can't. That's not real. Like, you're just, you know, you're full of it. And she's like, no, we can do this. And she sent the script to um, Frida Giles, Dr. Frida Giles here at the University of Georgia, who has retired now, but she's a director and she was in theater and um, African-American studies. And Dr. Giles called me up and said, I just want you to know that in October, we're putting on the play and I'm directing it. And so I'm like, what? (laughs) And so she's like, I need to, I need to shorten some things just to take out some of the language, you know, some of the theory language and things like that. And I need to just make each vignette um, small enough that we can see it all in one sitting and, you know, between each vignette, the audience can talk back, but she's like, I'm not cutting a lot and we're going to do exactly what you have here. So she has a shortened script that she made. But honestly, she didn't cut out a ton. She just cut out some of the academic pieces and she gave it to the actors and they brought it to life. But what we said in the talk back is, and we even showed the script to say, y'all can't see the quotes, but there are quotes all throughout this. Like I set the stage for like the synopsis, where folks met up to talk, what did the space smell like, sound like, feel like? But in terms of like the language, that was all participants' quotes. I might have added a few lines to give context to the conversation, but majority, I'll probably say 80% is participants' quotes. Okay, so like it, just listening to you talk about this project, there's there's so many layers to it and um i just have to imagine that your um obligation isn't the right word you're you're i think and you tell me if this isn't the right word but your love for your participants right so were you nervous at any point like were you seeing performances and because you want to do right by them 
So did you have any moments of, mm, I don't know about that? I mean, if it's mostly their words, maybe that came up less, but um, I mean, you're so invested in the work, you're so invested in the people and the community. Can you talk a little bit about some of that feeling and attachment and how you, you work through that? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. These are such great questions. So when this group was coming together back in December 2020, I was like, yes, this is great work. And just sending it to the participants made me nervous because I was like, oh, they could be like, no, I didn't mean to say this. No, I don't want you to share this part or that part. Um. And they could tell me to take things out. But hearing back from them that it was incredible and that the theatrical piece gave them all the emotions that they needed, that put my heart at ease for a couple of months. (laughs) (laughs) Once Dr. Giles said, okay, I'm giving the script to these people to read. And she started to assign characters. I got nervous because we said some pretty truth. They were all truthful things, but they were hard to hear. Um, for example, there is a community here called Town, where it was called Town some 50 years ago. And the university actually um, took black folks land that live in Town and gave them you know what they call a buyout mm-hmm. but basically that land is worth millions of dollars now and folks who were part of that community are trying to get their land back or some type of financial um uh reparation and all of that well we had a participant who said my family owned two homes in this area and I was nervous that they were going to say no take that part out Mm -hmm. but they did not Mm -hmm. and I felt good about that but months later I said you know who am I to tell these stories you know are people going to resonate with these stories when we have the talk back are community members going to push back Am I going to lose anything from being a part of this? Are participants going to lose anything? Like, this is dangerous. This is doing dangerous work. So I had a lot of sleepless nights where I was just thinking about the what if of it all and who this could impact. And I thought, you know, I could take it. If I don't, you know, I don't work at the university anymore, so I can't get fired. But if I don't get a job from this, I'll survive. But for participants who live here, I didn't want them to be impacted. For co-researchers who live here and have this degree, I didn't want them to be impacted. So that did keep me up at night. But when I went to the the play each night, not only did the community embrace us, but they wanted to hear more. They wanted to know more. They wanted to know how they could act. They want to know what's next. And we've received calls from other places, other college towns that want us to do similar work. And so, yeah, I did. I was nervous about all the what ifs, particularly in a very political climate right now. 
but people were open. I think the emotion around the project helped to sway some people who couldn't see the big picture before, Mm -hmm. but now they can see it. And so that's been beautiful. Would you share a little bit about the talk back piece? Um, And like, who was participating in that? Like, were there certain voices that surfaced, but you noticed, well, this group of audience members didn't have a lot to say. Like, how did that, how did it look? And then what observations do you have about that process? Yes. So one of the reasons we wanted to have the talk back piece is because the play itself was members of the Black communities here talking. And we wanted the audience to talk back. How did you feel? What came up for you? What are you going to do now that you know what you know? So every night um, we had different types of people in the audience. Some nights, majority students. Some nights, majority faculty and staff. Some nights, majority community. So it really depends on what the audience was made up of. But I will say each night there was such thoughtful questions, one around, you know, well, why do Black students even decide to go to historical, historically white institutions like a Georgia when they have the option to attend HBCUs, mm-hmm. right? So that was a conversation each night. Each night, people had questions like, well, what can we do now to fix this? What's one action step we can all take? Each night, folks had questions about, well, has the university responded to this? You know, has there been any backlash around this? Um, And each night, people were thankful that they had been able to share space with um, with the actors. And each night people ask the actors, how was it to even perform this? Mm -hmm. And the actors share that it was very hard to perform pieces of this because it wasn't, they were not disconnected from this work. Mm -hmm. They were even more connected. If they were from Athens, yes. But if they were from any college town and a part of a Black community, they felt very connected to that. They, one person was from Tuscaloosa, Mm -hmm. Tuscaloosa. And I struggle with that word, Tuscaloosa, yes, <laughs> and, and was impacted by the work. Another person was from, um, uh, lived in the community around uh, Louisiana State and was impacted by the work. So they said it was very hard, but what got them through was the community, again, that word, the community they were able to create as actors, and then seeing how the audience was impacted also kept them engaged but the the talk back was my favorite part because I felt like people felt comfortable to share someone said you know when else am I going to have this conversation in a room like this around these topics like when would I get to do this where would I get to do this and so I think the responses have been beautiful I've received emails and letters and text messages from even people who viewed it virtually around how it made them feel. You know, you talking about this makes me think about, um, you know, when we are doing dissertation work or in my role as a faculty member advising doctoral students, 
we always have this section, usually in chapter five, <laughs> implications for research and practice. You are really surfacing implications for community as well, you know, and um, your work in a way that I've seen with very few other studies really is, I, I, I have to assume, right? And I'm just taking your word for how you're telling the story, but I, I love this idea of what you gave back to individuals, to families, to the community. Um, and it all fits with, you know, in the early comments, when you were talking about wanting to do systemic work, it's that too. I mean, it's all the, it's not just all the boxes we try to check, but you've added boxes that we really should be thinking about, you know, what are we giving back specifically? Not philosophically, not a ripple effect abstraction, but what am I saying? Thank you for helping me. Mm -hmm. And thank you for being brave and, and sharing your wisdom. Um, yeah. So that's just a ramble. But if you have a response. I do. And I want you to know where I learned that. You know, I learned that as a Black woman in community, right? We, we give back in ways that people don't always see, but it's all community-based. Right. And then I learned that again in student affairs, we truly give back to our campuses in a way that people don't always recognize or understand the work. We want our work to impact people in real time. That's why we're practitioners. And so to then come into this academic space and have people just wax poetic about theor theory and not do anything with it did not sit, sit right with me as a Black woman, as a practitioner first, <laughs> and then a scholar. And so I tried to find ways to bring all those pieces of myself together and honor folks that we literally ignore every single day. So that's how that came together. That's, that's beautiful. And thank you. Thank you for sharing the I, I'm always interested in the how'd you get their stories. And so that's great. And I, I want have... people to know it didn't have anything. Well, I was I was the vessel, mm. but a lot of this community led a lot of this. Mm -hmm. Community folks are the reason why we even had participants to begin with. Community folks are the ones that got the script in the hands of Dr. Giles. Community folks showed up with no pay to put together this production. And community folks are the ones continuing to put us in spaces like local schools and community centers and churches where we are able to continue to have this conversation. So I want us to see that thread throughout because that's the reason it keeps, it keeps moving on. And it's not about what Rashonda is doing. Yeah. Well, and what a, a gift you brought to it to have that openness, because some people get real rigid about, no, this is what I'm doing. And you, there's um, something very Zen about, I will go where the project takes me and, and being led by the participants that, I, I just haven't seen in a lot of other work. So yeah. um, 
So you talked about other communities being interested in your work and, hey, come do that in our backyard kind of thing. Are you building on this? I, I mean, I also have to imagine the, and you talked about this a little bit, the emotional labor that goes into it. You might need a minute to breathe before, okay, now what's next? Is there a what's next? What what do you see in the future related to your work? Yes, so in terms of my current community, we plan to still, you know, engage in these conversations and we have specific action steps that we want the university to make. Um, one is around recognizing Town and um, sharing this story with, with students that might live in the residence halls. <laughs> That, you know, that were built on top of this community and unpacking that for students, because right now they have no idea. Um, And then we have some other ideas about some DNA testing that community folks want to happen around some of their enslaved ancestors. And so we have action steps. And again, I'm acknowledging the work of people who have been doing this for forever. And I just want to, you know, expand their work and pour resources into what they're doing, because that's what this is all about. But in terms of next steps as a faculty member, I want to continue this work and I want to get grants and I want us to explore a community engaged framework. What steps do we need to take to be able to do this work across institutions, right? We know that there's that that building trust and building rapport with communities that takes time. So of course that will be a part of the framework, but also once we get participant stories, once we understand what's happening, how can we then create spaces for community to talk back to the school, talk back to students, talk back to other stakeholders, and how can we move this work forward? And so I would love to do it other places. Um, Also prioritizing my self-care and and my health. I don't know what it looks like per se, but I'm also applying, currently applying to places where I think people would be open to doing this type of work Mm -hmm. and places where they would they would support my my grant writing and support me doing um, critical work like this. So that's what it looks like. Um, I'm mostly looking at Southern schools where we might have some important conversations happening right now, but I'm open. I'm staying open to the possibility because that has helped me and that's grounded me thus far. So I don't have these rigid plans in place. Um, I'm seeing what happens. But you also know what else, Michelle? I'm also working with doc students to, to teach, you know, how can we do work that we really care about as practitioners? How can we love on our participants? How can we give more than we take? How can we do better? you know, as scholars. And so I'm doing that work. And I also want to do that work with faculty members too, who long to do something like this, but may not feel like they have the capacity to do something like this, right? But if we can't do the work we want to do after tenure, like what was the point? Right, right. 
So I'm also thinking about, you know, processes from the doc student purview, from the faculty purview, how can we set up these processes for people to do work that really resonate with their, their, their mental, their physical, their emotional, so we can, we can stay in these academic spaces as whole people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I have to tell you, I've, I've done a number of episodes I have followed the script I sent you less on this one than any, any other. I was looking over the questions, but I think we hit on most of the things. Oh so, yeah. But I just can't thank you enough. I mean, this is inspiring. I mean, it, it really is. And I didn't mention this earlier, but um, congratulations on the Saxa dissertation of the year. I mean, this is huge what you're you're doing and what you I and I love how you put giving back more than we take because I feel like the standard is give something back. And that's a pretty low standard, you know? Um, And not everybody even meets that, Um, but giving more than you take, that is, that's probably somewhere in sort of the crux where transformative work really happens. So yeah, I love it. Well, let me yield with my questions because I, I mean, I have more, but I want to be respectful of your time. Are there things you want to talk about or share that I haven't asked you about? Hmm. No, I think we touched on all of it. I really do. I think um, I'm just, I'm just, I've been so amazed at the awards that we're winning and at the conversation that we're starting with people. And I think it's, it's resonating with other people like it's resonating with you. Mm-hmm. People are like, wait, what? How? What does this mean? What did partic- how did participants feel? How did you feel? How did the actors feel? So I think there's been so much great synergy around it just because folks are, they just want to know the details and they're just excited to lean in a little bit more. So anytime I have an opportunity to share like this, I'm grateful. And I think the SACSA podcast platform is will also be helpful for scholars and practitioners to learn because I think practitioners can figure out ways to be engaged in their community as well. Maybe you're not writing a dissertation, but what can your office do mm-hmm. to serve communities a little bit better? And not from this like savior approach, but mm-hmm. how can you work alongside of communities that's what I want folks thinking about because we are truly partners in this thing Mm -hmm. we are so yeah well and what wisdom and ideas and innovations are we missing out on by not fostering that that partnership and opportunity Mm -hmm. so so. Mm -hmm. and and what what type of community spaces are we creating when we teach students not to care about their neighbors Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Or the land where the residence halls sit. So, right. Right. Yeah. This has been wonderful. Um, (laughs) I, I really, I've learned so much and you've given me so many things to think about. Um, Not that the podcast is all about me, but (laughs) a little bit it is because I'm the one sitting here, but um, I just, I really, I thank you. I know that life is busy and exhausting and we're approaching we're recording in what is it 
the 22nd of November. So the end of the semester is coming up and everybody you're like you talked about before we came on air, you know, it's the post Saxa. Okay. Now I got to recalibrate. Time. <laughs> so um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for this. So Thank you for this platform and this opportunity. I, I invite anyone to reach out to me should they have questions or comments or if they just want to talk back. I am open for that. Well, and let me leave the door open to you. Anytime you want to come back on and say, hey, Michelle, let me tell you what we're doing now. You <laughs> let me know and we'll find a time to work. So okay. this has been great. Stay tuned, Michelle, okay? All right, that will for sure. Um, you know, I, I feel like this has been such an uplifting conversation, but the wrap-up question that I always ask is, what's something that's giving you hope right now? What And it can be personal, professional, whatever is happening in your world. What's something that's giving you hope? Yeah, we, like I mentioned last Friday, we had a conversation with a local high school and they got to watch the vignettes and they got to share how they felt. And what's giving me hope right now is amazing young people mm -hmm. who are thinking critically, who are challenging the status quo, who, who they crave the world to be different. And they're not just waiting. Mm -hmm. They're asking the questions. And they are able to see the bigger picture and put things together in a way I was not able to do at 17 or 18. So what that's really doing for me right now, Michelle, is giving me hope for the future because I know that we'll be in good hands with these young people. And I think the more that we center their voices and their experiences and their wisdom, we'll be able to see the change that we hope to see. Yeah. That's good. That's a long-term hope. That's not just a, a, I hope for this to happen on Wednesday kind of thing, you know? So I love that. Well, thank you again, Dr. Breeden. I really appreciate your time. I appreciate your insights and the gifts that you brought forth through the conversation today, but the work that you're doing. So Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Additionally, today's Essay Today podcast is brought to you by SAXA, and we thank them for their support. And of course, my colleague, Jen Lowe at the University of South Florida, producer for the show, Jen, we couldn't make this happen without you. So thanks as always for your collaboration. And I want to leave with a quote, and today... Um, it's a, actually a quote from an article by our guest um, from the, and Roshanda, help me if I'm mispronounce, mispronouncing. Is it Kambahi? Kambahi. Kambahi, thank you. The Kambahi mm -hmm. River Collective. The quote is, if Black women were free, it would mean that everyone else would have to be free since our freedom would necessitate the destruction of all the systems of oppression. So, and Dr. Breeden, um, I, I recommend reading her article, Our Presence is Resistance, Stories of Black Women in Senior Level Student Affairs Positions at Predominantly White Institutions. Um, pick it up, read that, read her dissertation, follow her work. 
um, do all the things. And thank you everyone for listening. Take care of yourselves and have a beautiful day. <laughs>